To me, Arkansas is significant in embracing entrepreneurials, mm-hmm. people, individuals, and the list is, you know that list. Yeah. Walton, yeah. Tyson, yeah. Hunt, you know, they all, yeah, it's pretty special. Welcome to the Be Epic Podcast, brought to you by the Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. I'm your host, Brent Williams. Together, we'll explore the dynamic landscape of business and uncover the strategies, insights, and stories that drive business today. Well, today I have with me Mr. Dew Thompson, and uh, Dew uh, is uh, was the was the chairman and CEO of Delta Plastics, which we'll get into uh, to in some depth in a little while. Uh, but for our purposes, uh, is one of the inductees into the class of the 2024 uh, Arkansas Business Hall of Fame. So first, do congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's quite an honor, and uh, you're quite deserving, and uh, a story that I'm looking forward to telling, both uh, at the induction ceremony on February 16th, but, but throughout uh, the next few minutes uh, with you. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And, you know, maybe uh, I, I want to I make sure we kind of get into your personal history a little bit, but maybe first start with uh, what, tell us a little bit about Delta Plastics and kind of how you got involved with it, how it evolved over time. Yeah, sure. Um, I actually uh, was a banker in my previous life mm-hmm. for about 14 years. So uh, I, I ended up purchasing Delta Plastics in November of 96. Um, The way I got there was uh, uh, during uh, that time period in banking, I uh, took a little bit of a sabbatical for about two years and actually worked for a privately held uh, family-owned plastics company. Okay. And then went back into banking for four more years. So it gave me exposure and knowledge of a couple of things. A, the dynamics of the plastics industry, mm-hmm. and B, uh, family-owned businesses. Mm. So uh, when I decided that I didn't want to finish in banking, I just I had a great job and great opportunities, but I wanted to do something on my own mm-hmm. and had a real uh, internal drive for that, uh, I just started looking mm. and uh, looking in the plastics industry. Ironically, this particular opportunity came to me uh, just from a friend, mm. a close friend, who said, "I know you're trying to exit banking quietly, uh-huh. and I know you're. You know, we've talked that we're looking in. You're looking in the plastics industry, and I happen to know a group that have uh, built a plant and has a. Uh, and they're in the plastics industry because there's multiple uh, disciplines in the plastic industry. It's not all the same. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, "Why don't you go talk to them? They're they're struggling, uh, but I think maybe they have a good idea." And uh, go see what you can do. Hmm. So with that, I arranged a meeting. Uh, I went and met with them, listened to their particular concept in that particular division of plastics. Which is in that particular division, it's called blown film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and they were also into recycling. So hmm. uh, I literally uh, did what every banker tells you not to do, and that is don't go it. Don't go into business on something you don't know about, mm-hmm. but I did. <laughs> so uh, there was an obvious learning curve, yeah. uh, but like all anybody that succeeds, you surround yourself with uh, p- 
people that do know about it. Absolutely. So uh, that started the journey in 96. And uh, I'm from Louisiana. Okay. So I moved from Louisiana up to Arkansas. Kind of northern Louisiana. Monroe. Okay. Yeah. And I moved from Monroe, Louisiana, where I was in the banking, and uh, moved to, uh, actually, the first plant was in Stuttgart, Arkansas. Okay. And uh, that's where I started. Just. And an attorney by by training, I believe. Is that no, right? not for okay. me. Okay. Uh, actually, people, it's funny people say that. When you walk through a plant, and uh, obviously in any type of manufacturing, it's it's all engineered based. Okay. And uh, plastic manufacturing can be relatively complicated, mm-hmm. but not. Depends mm-hmm. on if you can understand the language. So actually, I had a <laughs> undergraduate degree from University of Louisiana Monroe in liberal arts okay in general studies and i actually and then i went to obviously I had a graduate degree in banking banking but okay. uh yeah so it banking gave me a great uh, financial discipline mm-hmm. but uh, and you saw a lot of businesses i'm sure i did banker. actually I, at one point in my life i was doing com- uh, commercial lending mm-hmm. and i also got exposed to uh the financially, the uh, several plastic companies that were successful, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it gave me a view of opportunities there. So you're in the plastics business for a couple of years, but then you did go back to banking for a few years after that. I did, yeah. yes, and then I decided uh, this opportunity came up, and I thought I would. Uh, you literally just jump. Well, let me. Let, I'm going to do my best to give a description, and then you uh, help me with what I did sure. wrong here, but. You know, and and I don't know if the original concept was this, but sort of where you all ended up was that that poly pipe was was used to water row crop in probably largely at that time just e- eastern Arkansas, maybe a little more broadly, but but it was difficult to dispose of, right? Yes. Uh, so t- let's think historically. Twenty five years ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, Polypipe was not necessarily the predominant way to irrigate. Mm-hmm. Reason being, it was just new. It was a new concept. So it's called uh, gravity uh, furrow irrigation. So what has happened in the ag industry with all throughout deltas, uh, whether it's Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, is uh, farmers bring uh, their farmland to grade. Mm-hmm. And once they bring bring their farmland to grade, which the purpose of is even application of chemicals and water control, which increases crop productivity. Mm-hmm. So once they bring those farms to grade or those fields, then you can use polypipe. You don't so, have to use the winding levees throughout the field. Anymore. No, or center pivot or wheel guns. And it's actually cheaper mm-hmm. than any other type of irrigation. And also academically, it's been proven uh, very productive. Okay. Um, but, but I guess, so the poly pipe is laid kind of at an edge of the field and, and waters, but, but then after a year, I think it's not yeah. useful again. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a, you lay poly pipe out from the well, uh, and it'll be transverse to where the furrows are and the water runs down the rows mm-hmm. and that's how, and at the end of the year, it's a commodity. The farmer only uses once a year because it doesn't have a shelf life any further than that. Mm -hmm. So what was happening in the industry was it was becoming a huge debris issue. Mm -hmm. In other words, 
Every roll is usually, historically, was a quarter mile long. Now some of it's a half mile long okay. in, in pipe. Mm-hmm. And they would roll it back up. And when they rolled it back up, it was fraught with organic matter and uh, dirt. Okay. So it was very contaminated, so you couldn't recycle it. Mm. So uh, it, it became just big, large piles of it around the Delta. I didn't originate the concept, but that was part of the concept of this particular group is if we can make the pipe Uh and we can sell it, but if we can reclimate it, pick it back up at the end of the season, and if we can build a, what we call wash system Mm -hmm. and wash all that dirt and organic matter out of the pipe, cut it all up, granulate it, remelt it, re-extrude it, and make a post-consumer resin out of it. Mm And then we can use that post-consumer resin to make more pipe or other products. Okay. That was their idea, not mine, but I thought it was a pretty phenomenal idea. Mm-hmm. What was the struggle at that point before or as you were stepping into the business? <clears throat> One, uh, I could make the pipe, but nobody could recycle it. Okay. Nobody in the United States. And actually, they weren't very successful in Europe with it either. So we actually, over years, and literally millions of dollars, we we kept working at it. And we built a system that would do that. That system was uh, uh, a very, uh, when I say, that particular system was very intense. It was almost like oil field work Hmm. because we had uh, large trommels. Basically, let me put it this way. We built the system based on we went to different industries to find the pieces of equipment equipment we needed that would get us further down the road. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, large trumbles uh, out of the timber industry that are used for debarking. We used those as a big washing machine. We used mud shakers out of the oil fill industry. Uh, we used mm-hmm. built the largest granulators in the United States, had them built for us. And then we went, uh, went to Europe, and they were much more advanced in other types of recycling. So we ended up marrying, uh, I say marrying, working with a company over there in Heidelberg, Germany, that would build specialized equipment for us okay. that we could put in that system that helped uh, clean all that pipe up mm-hmm. and get it. And then at, once, at one point, once it's completely washed and dried and cut in small pieces, we would melt it and make uh, a post-consumer resin out of it, which was actually in a bead form. Okay. So- uh, all this is happening in Stuttgart? It's all happening in Stuttgart. Okay. Uh, and uh, to be honest with you, we w- it took years. Mm. Because what you're trying to do is, <clears throat> in the plastics industry, poly, uh, polyethylene or plastic is produced by natural gas, is the okay. base. So it goes from natural gas to ethylene, to polyethylene, which is actually plastic. There's as many different types of polyethylene as there are colors in the world Mm. because they all have different properties. So uh, what my challenge was, and it's produced from people like Exxon, Mobil, Formosa, the large uh, people you know in those industries, Mm -hmm. and they're produced out of large plants, a lot of it in along the Gulf Coast. That's where those plants are. So the challenge was, can I produce resin like they produce resin, but they're producing virgin resin from natural gas, 
I'm reclamating it out of the environment and producing a resin, and can I produce it at a lower cost of production than they can produce virgin polyethylene? Okay. And that was the big challenge, because mm-hmm. it's by the time you reclamate it out of the environment, and you wash it, and you re-extrude it, and you get it to the form you want, it's significant expense. Mm-hmm. And it's how you control those spend expenses. And in manufacturing, it's like anything else. The larger the volume that you can produce, the lower you can you can lower your cost of production. Mm-hmm. And and so you would, I, I guess, what does the pickup process look like? And I, and I guess I assume you're having to. That's part of the sales process with yes with the producer. Yes, actually, you know, in, in business school, it's called a closed loop business model. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in a minute, to answer your question about the pickup. So you produce a product, Mm -hmm. i.e. polypipe, out of virgin polyethylene. You sell it, Mm -hmm. and it ends up to distributors. The distributor sells it to the end user, the farmer. Okay. Once the farmer gets it, he uses it. And in this case, it was pipe. He would roll it back up, very dirty. And then he would just pile it on his farm. Well, what our sales position was, if you buy our pipe, we will come clean up your farm. And nobody else in the industry could offer that because hmm. nobody was capable of making that commitment or was willing to, spend, at that time, still not, spend that kind of money and that type of development to create that process to make it a closed-loop system. Mm-hmm. You ask about the pickup. At one time, we had 82 18-wheelers. Hmm. They were uh, uh, 42-foot-long dump trucks with these uh, clamshells on top of the 18-wheeler, and those... 18-wheelers would circumnavigate Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Missouri and would pick that pipe up. So as we we actually GPSed farms in, okay. and uh, at one time we, we had over 5,000 farms GPSed in in the south, and we ran a trucking business hmm. that uh, circumnavigate, circumnavigated those uh, four states. And then we included Texas and Colorado, okay. and that we would bring it all back. Keep in mind, in any type of cost cost of production, logistics, or any type of business, logistics is a huge cost, Mm -hmm. trucking. Mm -hmm. So we did it as efficiently as anybody else could in the reclamation of it off farms. Hmm. And so you're you're solving a big problem for the farmer, I suspect, right? Because this is just not only an eyesore, but taking up much needed space. Yeah, actually, uh, you know... uh, the thing is, it's a, not to go against the EPA, but it was against the law to bury it or burn it. Mm. So what you did is, uh, even though somewhat that was somewhat done because you're in such rural areas, mm-hmm. but uh, is uh, take it to landfills and pay tipping fees. Okay. So again, okay. think of it like this: we made the pipe, sold the pipe, and when it came to and the farmer used it, but when it came time to pick it up, we were like uh, waste management. We cleaned up their farm okay. because, you know, you say one man's trash is another man's treasure. <laughs> Nobody wanted that pipe, mm-hmm. but we did. Yeah. And so what that did was it created a huge wedge in the uh, industry where once the farmer saw we were cleaning up every farm uh, that we could get our hands on, they would come in and they'd come to their distributor and they'd go, I want Delta Plastics. And they said, well, why don't you want this other brand? He goes, because they're going to clean up my farm. Mm-hmm. So we even use it as leverage that if 
the other product was purchased, not Delta, we'd say, well, you, you need to call them and see that you need to call that manufacturer and see if they'll clean up your farm, mm-hmm. which we knew the answer to that was no. Interesting. Yeah. So it created significant value. So you pick it up, you clean it, you convert it to post-consumer but, resin. That's correct. And and then I think the business evolved a little further in that you created industrial products from that resin, right? Yes. We actually uh, would take that product and we looked up, and this was all mathematically proven. We were able to make... Uh, garbage bags mm-hmm. that were made out of 100% post-consumer resin. Mm. So what the fact that those garbage bags were made out of 100% post-consumer resin, plastic taken out of the environment, we had the lowest, lowest carbon footprint of any garbage bag on the market. Mm. So I knew I couldn't compete necessarily on the retail basis against, and I just use this for the big Glad mm-hmm. or... Clorox or whoever made garbage bags Mm -hmm. on a retail space. Yeah. Walking in, me walking in and buying it off the shelf, you're not going to compete. I'm not, yeah. They they were too well branded Mm -hmm. and had too large of a footprint. But so what we did was we sought groups out, businesses of all types, who were looking for lead tax credits. Okay. So, for example, we went to New York City schools. We went to NFL stadiums. We went to Ford Motor Company. We went to government agencies like Library of Congress, and we'd say, we can sell you this product. And not only is it have the lowest carbon footprint for a garbage bag, mm-hmm. but you will also, you, by buying it, will acquire lead tax credits. Mm. So the way we distributed that is... And then what you do is the way garbage bags are sold, they're sold in the janitorial sanitation industry. So what we did was we would go to the distributors for that, Mm -hmm. and we would go to that janitorial sanitation distributor, say, in a big metroplex environment like Washington, Mm D.C., and we would say, you want want Library of Congress as a a customer? And they'd go, Mm -hmm. yeah. And they'd say, well, if you work with me and work with me on splitting percentages, margins, mm-hmm. I'll bring you Library of Congress, and in turn, you'll be a hero, and Library of Congress will get lead tax credits. Mm-hmm. Well, and you had a similar experience in selling the polypipe, right? I mean, or at least in working with distributors, I, I guess, and offering yes. a unique value yes. proposition. Yeah, well, the, the, yeah. that's exactly right, because we would say to them, you buy our product, we're going to clean up your customers' farms. Mm-hmm. And so they endorsed it because mm-hmm. they knew it was a good thing environmentally. Mm-hmm. So it got to where we were collecting not just millions, but we would gotten into the billions of pounds collected out of the environment and convert, converted to post-consumer resin. And, and you started producing those garbage bags at least first or maybe exclusively, I'm not sure, in Little Rock. Is that right? We we did. Okay. Uh, we The first plant was in Stuttgart. Okay. The next plant, then we needed to expand. Mm-hmm. So this next plant was in uh, in the industrial park in Little Rock. Okay, that worked well. And then from there, we ended up going to a plant in Texas, and from there, Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. so we built plants based on or acquired plants that were in certain industries, uh, certain geographical areas that we needed. Okay, um, and so largely throughout the South. But you mentioned some in the West. I think. 
Wisconsin was another area we did. that you succeeded in? We did. Uh, in that part of the world, it's uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota are huge dairy industries. Mm-hmm. And they use what they call uh, their significantly large plastic silage bags. Mm. And they put all their silage in there, and that's how they store it okay. in place of a silo. And uh, once they uh, fed their dairy cows and emptied those silage bags, it was kind of the same issue. They couldn't get rid of them other than take them to landfills. Mm-hmm. So we worked with the states of Wisconsin and Minnesota and put together a collection plans up there uh, through ag government agencies to clean up those dairy farms. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you put together, um, no one accomplishes that alone, right? You know, um, so clearly you put together a team over time that could support you and was successful in that. How did how'd you build that team? How'd you... That's really constructed. Uh, that's a great question. So seven or eight years into it, um, you know, the first year I lost over uh, seven figures. It was significant. And mm. I didn't have seven figures to lose. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, we, but we kept uh, making our losses smaller and smaller until about year four we broke even. About seven or eight years into it, <clears throat> having been a banker, mm-hmm. I called an investment group and I said, uh, you know, there's business analysts, in my opinion, on every corner with all levels of aptitude and experience. I want to know who, in your opinion, through this investment banker uh, who dealt with entrepreneurial families, who, in your opinion, is the best business analyst, you know? So he came to me and he said, I know a group and this is said group and they're up on the East Coast. Why don't you go interview with them? So I did, and I brought them in, and they were there for almost nine months. Hmm. Paid them significantly to analyze who I was, what I was, what the industry was, from the janitor, janitor, from the janitor, all the way to the to me, Mm -hmm. and how we were structured. And I said, the key thing is, I want you to hurt my feelings. Hmm. I want you to challenge me and tell me everything that you see different than I do. And uh, so it was through much enlightenment and discussion, them coming in and saying, well, I think you need to do so-and-so. And And, uh, I would say, no, I I, I don't. And they said, well, let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I would tell them why I didn't think so. But we would come to uh, usually a really good answer. Mm -hmm. And with that, the other thing is you have, you know, building your team the way I, I function is um, I embrace every employee, always have, because nobody knows the job better than the person that does it themselves. And I don't care if it's digging the ditch or doing uh, financial analysis. Nobody knows it better than that guy that does it every day. So I never embarrassed anybody, but I strove for, in my department heads, and with uh, my employees, diversity of opinion. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to tell me, oh, this this is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And we would discuss it intensely. And they knew I was on their side, even though I may not agree with them. Mm-hmm. And it, I think with that management style, it brings to life the gift or freedom as an employee to, uh, if, you, if you know you're safe, mm-hmm. and uh, if you know you're in, in your thoughts, mm-hmm. And you embrace your work because you 
you're a contributor. Mm -hmm. And if you're a contributor as an employee, you feel value. And that's important. You need to feel value mm -hmm. as an employee and, uh, you know, as special. Like, I'll make a difference. Absolutely. And that's how I managed. And uh, I was able to build a really good team from, uh, at that time, even though I was owner and chairman, from a, a really good, smart CEO to uh, other people that were over department heads, either in engineering or sales or wherever, uh, they came in and after interviewing with us, they'd go, oh, I like the culture. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing I can't stress enough, mm -hmm. is culture is everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to work at it and be careful because the larger you get, the harder it is to maintain that culture because mm -hmm. you get more fragmented. Mm -hmm. But if you can stay the course and create a, a productive culture for your employees, it's the game changer. Mm -hmm. you, you truly are a family. Yeah. And uh, well, that gets lost in a lot of uh, larger companies. Yeah. You know, well, I, and I was about to ask you, and you almost sort of answered it. Culture can kind of be ambiguous, you know, at times. Mm -hmm. I tend to think about it as this, I guess it kind of starts with values, you know, and but, but it includes norms and traditions. It's it's this thing that's a little bit ambiguous, but it is remarkably important. Yeah. And let me, I'll, I'll give you an example. You need everybody when needs a path, mm. but you need the rules of how to follow the path. Mm. So we were almost like in hiring people like Boy Scouts. When you came to work for us as a film line operator or whatever you did, you would come in and, and we actually had all the employees put together their definition of culture. Mm -hmm. mm. And, uh, and so when you came to work, you were, you were given a profile of, I'm starting here at $18 an hour, but if I do this and this and this in six months, I'm going to be at $19 an hour. Yeah. And if I do this, this, this in the next three months, I'll be $20 an hour. And it gave them a path to follow to show, um, you know, just like you would in a Boy Scout, you go from tenderfoot mm -hmm. to second class to first class to whatever. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be a manager. Mm -hmm. And so with that, and they created that path. It was in, built by employees. Interesting. Well, you so you, you built a team, you grew the business, and and you sold it not too long ago, right? Uh, and um, I, I'm sure I know you were passionate about it, so I know you you feel like it's something that can continue to succeed after you. Absolutely, yeah. It's a it's a great business, great company. Sold it to a private equity group, and out of New York, and uh, they continue to grow it. Awesome. Um, well, I know that. Uh, Mary Ellen is a pretty big part of this story as well, or at least that's what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, not only her, but maybe your family. She, uh, she and I met, uh, actually, when we got married, I was 40 and she was 30. And so, uh, and she graduated in journalism from LSU. But she immediately jumped into the middle of it, helping me with uh, books and finances and actually, she lived in Monroe, Louisiana. We had one young son at the time. I now have three. Mm -hmm. And a second one was just born, and I was in Stuttgart. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that plant, the plants run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I would leave on a Friday and drive to Monroe and turn around and leave on Sunday and come back to Stuttgart. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that's hard on a marriage mm -hmm. when you're raising a family and you're the, you're, the husband's gone. Mm -hmm. 
and she did nothing but embrace it. And then at, finally, after two years, we said, you know what, that's enough. We're going to move to Little Rock. And uh, it all worked out really well. But she's an inter- integral part of it. And uh, I, I think she's a lot smarter than me. <laughs> well, you mentioned Little Rock. And so kind of as we as we start to wrap up, um, you know, you've been a part of the Arkansas community now for, for some time. 25 years. And yeah. an important part of it. You've contributed uh, in many ways to this community. Uh, what's what has it meant to you to have built this business and and built life? You know, I, I would say in this state, Arkansas embraced what I did, and they were. Oh, it was a wonderful state to do business in, huh. and have, having experienced uh, financial the financial industry in Louisiana mm-hmm. and being exposed to other, um, it was just a great state. Uh, everything from meeting with the governors and them helping me out, economic development. Um, it was all, uh, they, they embraced everything I did. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't thank that enough. And I don't know if it's, you know, they're used, to me, Arkansas is significant in embracing entrepreneurials, mm-hmm. people, individuals, and the list is, you know that list. Yeah. Walton, yeah. Tyson, yeah. you know, they all, yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, that list, you know, uh, many of them what make up the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame. You know, it is uh, truly a collection of special people, you know, that have uh, through business have built their businesses and, and built our state, you know, over time. And it's it's truly an amazing group to be a part of. Well, it shows. Yeah, well, well, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to February the 16th. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun uh, that night. And uh, I just wanted to once again say well, congratulations on, uh, I know it was a lot of hard work. Uh, I'm sure there was lots of trials and tribulations, but you, you certainly built a wonderful business. And I'm certainly glad you're a part of the Arkansas community and the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame. Well, thank you. On behalf of the Walton College, thank you for joining us for this captivating conversation. To stay connected and never miss an episode, simply search for Be Epic on your preferred podcast service.